A quick note before we start this episode of Pandanomics. We recorded this on Wednesday morning, a few hours before all hell broke loose in Washington. So we weren't ignoring the chaos, we just didn't know it was going to happen. It's still a good episode though, so please keep listening. Peacefully. Thanks. Welcome back to Pandanomics, a series exploring the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the coming months may hold for Canadians. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. To kick off the new year, we have Scotiabank Chief Economist Jean-François Perrault joining us again to put on his prognosticator hat and tell us exactly what 2021 is going to look like, but no pressure at all. Welcome back, JF, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to be back. I guess as a chief economist, you're pretty much always wearing your prognosticator hat. <laughs> That's right. We just had different colored hats for different different moves that we're in. <laughs> okay, so 2020 is finally done, and we'd probably all like to forget that it ever happened. Um, but it's not like we're out of the woods yet. COVID cases are spiking in many places. New mutations are arising that could pose new challenges, and lockdowns are getting stricter in many places all of which must make forecasting especially difficult. But let's let's just start with the big picture. Um, how do you see economic growth this year after a decline in GDP in 2020 of, what, something like 6%? Almost 6%. I mean, I feel like I've been saying we're at an interesting period for, for too long now, but um, this really interesting period of, you know, everything that we look at, um, everything that we know, uh, up until the last few weeks with the respect to the spike in the virus, suggests that next year, or sorry, this year, 2021, uh, should be really, really strong, right? So there, you know, there's lots of stimulus that was put in place last year that's still sitting in bank accounts. That's going to get spent as people get more comfortable with, with the state of the world. You know, there is a new presidential regime in the U.S., um, you know, China is doing well. The housing market is doing well here. Confidence has been rising. Uh, you know, household and business balance sheets are generally strong. So all that suggests that, you know, at some point this year, and of course we have the vaccine. So all that together suggests that at some point this year, you're going to have a pretty powerful rebound in activity. The challenge is it's clouded in the short run by, you know, what is, what is you know, evidently kind of terrible COVID news, right? Cases have been increasing very significantly. They're going to get worse as we kind of exit the Christmas period and we see the ramifications of that. You know, there's variants out there that are scaring folks a little bit. Um, and, so, and, you know, lockdowns are being reimposed in, in various parts of the country. You know, where Quebec is likely to impose a curfew or might have imposed a curfew by the time this is, this is, this is broadcast. Major lockdowns in Europe. So the short run is really is really kind of scary. You know, we're kind of going back to the worst of the pandemic uh, from last year, but it's important for that for folks to understand that that you know this is all very much temporary. That you know there is the vaccine, and the vaccine is you know it, it, this is a major development on 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 the on the on the virus side, right? That at some point in time the virus will die out as people get more and more vaccinated. Um, so you know it's a matter of. Uh, you know, tempering kind of the, the the negativity that we might be experiencing now as a result of, you know, restrictions on our ability to move and various things um, with the reality that uh, as the vax, as the virus kind of takes a, a, a back seat and we start to see it in the rearview mirror, there is a lot of potential for quite strong growth for the remainder of the year and into 2022. 
Right. So I think as we got towards the end of 2020 and celebrated New Year's, everybody thought, well, this is going to be, uh, you know, this is going to be the big change, light at the end of the tunnel and all that. But as you said, still a bunch of obstacles to overcome. So again, I recognize the difficulty of, of forecasting in this kind of environment, but has have your forecasts evolved given, the, you know, some of the factors such as you know, there are challenges around uh, administering the vaccine widely, questions around mutations. We don't really know what that what that means just yet. But has your have your projections for growth for this year evolved or been affected by some of those factors? Not yet. I mean, we had been uh, in Canada in particular a little bit below consensus. So we had built in a little bit more weakness, a little bit more uncertainty about the near term than our than 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 other forecasters. So um, you know, in terms of the vaccine having this tremendous impact early on in the year, we never saw that. We always thought this was kind of a late second quarter, second half of next year story. And that, and that seems to be kind of still a reasonable assumption. Um, now we hadn't anticipated the, you know, the, 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 the extent of the pickup in, in, in the virus that we're seeing, we hadn't anticipated the extent of the lockdowns that we're seeing. We thought, you know, we'd be able to get through kind of some labor, laser focused, uh, um, interventions and that's clearly not been successful so there's a little bit of surprise on that front um, but that to some extent is 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 you know is being offset by you know, still pretty positive economic developments if you look at the f- the last quarter of 2020 in the Canadian context um, you know the first two months of the uh, of, of the quarter so November October November were really really strong uh, much stronger than we thought uh, and as as you might recall, I mean, the virus had started to, re, you know, return at that point in time, and there were targeted shutdowns here and there. And, you know, parts of the economy just powered through that. Um, you know, we're, we we got December real estate data uh, today and yesterday for, for a few provinces, and, and the real estate market is like on absolute fire. And, you know, we're seeing even evidence of that in, in, in say, Toronto early in the year, if you, you know, you talk to some brokers that it's just... You know, there is a tremendous amount of momentum still. So, you know, there there are these kind of powerful forces that are pushing us forward, even in light of, um, you know, what are, again, you know, pretty, pretty negative developments on the virus side. So, you know, when we put all that stuff together, like, you know, we do think our forecast is reasonably balanced. We're probably going to, you know, and be in the four and a half percent range for Canada this year. Um, upside and downside associated with that. But. Uh, you know, I think the 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 reasonableness of that forecast will come to light as, you know, we kind of clear uh, clear the clear the decks of the vaccine, and hopefully in the next few weeks. Now, the right. the big question obviously is, so what if we what if we can't? What if the virus is, um, you know, even if we start rolling out vaccines much more rapidly, which is almost certainly going to be the case than we've than we've done over the last few weeks. Um, now, it's possible that, you know, these more contagious strains of the virus just mean that the explosion of the virus that we're seeing here and other countries, you know, has more legs to it and kind of carries us into February, maybe March. And that, you know, the restrictions that we've placed upon ourselves, um, you know, last longer than we think. That's possible. Um, we'll see. I mean, that's just it's a medical question. It's, you know, this thing is organic. It's changing as, as we try to try to control it. Um, but that, you know, that, that still, you know, we still believe that, um, we're still set up for, you know, pretty, pretty solid growth once that's, once that's behind us. 
Right. So assuming that that recovery starts to take place in a reasonable amount of time, what are the sectors that you see sort of recovering quickly, most quickly, I guess? I mean, we know which sectors were most deeply affected by the virus, you know, hospitality, travel, food, uh, restaurants, that kind of thing. I guess, is that the main area of recovery or are there other areas that you're looking at in particular that could generate the kind of growth that you're talking about? So we expect something that's pretty broad based once once we get out of this. Now, if you, you know, one way of, of thinking about recoveries in general is to look at areas where there are pent up demand, right? So, so for instance, um, you know, households and businesses have a lot of are sitting on lots of cash and bank accounts. We know that's going to get spent at some point in time. Um, so the question is, you know, what have what have we been spending on now? What have we not been buying that we really want to buy going forward? So how are you going to deploy that money? And clearly, um, an area where where that hasn't been the case is you know anything related to travel, hospitality, accommodation, entertainment, right? And th- those are the sectors that have hit the hardest and continue to be hit the hardest. Um, but they're also the sectors where there's, in a sense, the greatest pent up demand, right? That that when when life goes back to normal. Um, you know, there's going to be, I think, a pretty significant rebound in those sectors. I mean, you're kind of seeing that in, for instance, you know, cruise line bookings, which are up very sharply. I mean, there is just this, you know, we're, we're firstly, we're social beings, so we want social interaction. And, and uh, you know, we want entertainment. Like, we need, we need a little bit of levity in our life. And, and, and I, I do think that, that those segments of our economy and the global economy as well are, are, are going to roar back at some point this year and, and probably for an extended period of time after that. I don't know if this is really in your in your space or not, but it was. I saw an article somewhere about how travel bookings are starting to pick up. People are starting to make plans for the end of the year on the assumption that they'll actually be able to do it. Could that potentially lead actually to a spike in prices? That things could get more expensive, as a, you know, if you want to go to Jamaica next Christmas, that everybody else does too, and it's going to, that kind of thing is actually going to become more expensive than it was pre-COVID by the end of this year. It's uh, not at all impossible. Right. I mean, you you will if everybody rushes for the rushes to, you know, jump on a plane, uh, uh, you know, the reality is that there's a limited amount of space for all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of space now because nobody's going. Um, but once everybody gets gets uh, comfortable with with, you know, going to Jamaica or going to Banff or, <laughs> or going to Charlottetown uh, or elsewhere, I mean, there 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 almost certainly will be capacity constraints at some point. Uh, and that, you know. Generally speaking, leads to higher prices, which isn't a bad. I mean, it's it, you know, it's not a it's not a great thing for consumers, but it you know, these are industries that will need the revenue and and um, you know, more demand for the services. Only you know, it can only be a good thing for for the travel industry and, and the hospitality industry. Let's just switch over to you know, you talked about the stimulus of which there has been uh, huge amounts deficit for this fiscal year in the area of 400 billion it's looking like debt well over a trillion dollars and growing we can talk about the debt to gdp ratio ratio i guess a bit but uh, you've been a deficit dove if i can call it that someone who has not been terribly concerned about uh, about the level of uh, deficit spending does that continue to be your view supportive of what the government has done and and i can only assume will continue to do going into 2021 
Yeah. I mean, you know, so, so long as the, you know, governments are deploying cash in a reasonably intelligent way, which is to say, either you're supporting firms and households get through a very difficult period of time, because it is a very difficult period of time. There's no question about that. Uh, or that, you know, they're clearly deploying um, uh, capital in ways that will enhance um, kind of long-term growth potential. I think those are those are wise types of investments, and you know they lead to better economic outcomes. Than otherwise, it would be the case. So you're not really flushing money down the toilet. Um, so uh, and and our sense is that up to this point, that's generally been the case. That you know money's been spent reasonably wisely. Um, you know, there'll be a budget in the spring at the federal level in Canada. The government's already announced that they want to spend, you know, an extra $20, $30 billion on things. We'll see what exactly that means. Um, but I think it becomes a little bit more critical as we go forward to analyze these spending plans with the, you know, the the filter of, you know, are they really, are they tangibly, are they realistically linked to uh, improving higher economic out, you know, improving economic outcomes, or is this more kind of, you know, kind of pork barrel thing in anticipation of an election? Um, and our judgment, I think, is fair to say that it, you know, if 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 it continues to be the case that uh, the funds are being spent in support of growth, um, then we're not, you know, we're not particularly worried about about the fiscal outlook in, in the country or the countries for that matter. And markets aren't going to be a, 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 of of that, or sorry, markets are going to be of that view as well which is basically how they've been looking at it for, for the last little while as well. And of course, through all of this, uh, which has been very supportive, is central bank actions. Central banks have been buying a, a lot of government debt as part of their balance sheet expansion programs or quantitative easing programs. That's true in Canada and the US and Europe and other countries as well. And, and those programs are, uh, you know, they're not likely to be wound down in any time in the near future. So you've got, in addition to, you know, uh, markets being supportive and, and and governments kind of doing the right thing. You've got central banks out there which are, you know, helping absorb some of this pretty significant increase in in supply government debt, which which you know of course helps um, uh, provide a degree of, of comfort in terms of the um, the sustainability of all this from a from an interest rate perspective. Right. So I don't want to dwell on it, but I guess in part we're counting on uh, low interest rates continuing for a an extended period of time, really, uh, because any sort of sharp increase in interest rates makes that makes that massive debt much more difficult to sustain. But I guess you're of the view that you know we can count on interest rates remaining sort of at their historically low rates for some period of time. Yeah, so so that's you know, I mean, and central bankers, including Tiff Macklin at Canada, have been very very clear. They want to keep interest rates at current levels for an extended period of time. You know, they're talking about twenty twenty three as when they might start thinking about um, altering the, the the stance of monetary policy. Now that's that's two years away, two and a half years away. Um, you know, we'll have registered pretty strong growth, hopefully, between now and then. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's part of their forecast. So, you know, it's not like this is going to be a surprise if it happens to them. I mean, this is how they, they think about the outlook. Um, and, you know, our assessment and their assessment is that low rates are going to be required through, uh, this year, probably next year to ensure that the excess capacity that's built up through this, this period of economic weakness, right? So the output gap has gotten bigger. Um, you know, unemployment rates are higher, the, the capacity utilizations are lower, and that's normal given the shock that we experience. It's going to take a while. Of, it's going to take a period of very strong growth to try and close that and return to, um, you know, 
normal rates of capacity utilization, lower rates of unemployment. And that means that rates need to be very low for a long period of time. And it means that fiscal policy needs to be stimulated for a long period of time as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the energy sector and Alberta and Saskatchewan and the impact of uh, what's gone on there in the last year or so. But that's also partly related to the other subject that I that I wanted to talk about, which was uh, developments uh, south of the border. Uh, the last time we spoke, which is in early November, just after the after the election in the United States, I started out by saying. Well, it looks like the U.S. election is probably over. And it turns out I was wrong because two months later, it looks like it maybe is over now. Uh, it, <laughs> At least according to Donald Trump, it wasn't over then. It looks like it's over now. It looks like the Democrats are going to control uh, both houses of Congress, perhaps paving the way for more aggressively progressive U.S. policy, however you define that. Many Canadians are probably breathing a sigh of relief about that, but the impact on us isn't, I think, entirely clear yet. What would you say are the biggest upsides and downsides of a fully democratic government in the U.S.? Well, first, I would say that it's easy to exaggerate the impact of a blue wave, right? So a completely democratic U.S. government. And the reason is, is very simple. So while while it's great to control the Senate, uh, which is looks like to be the case for the for the Democrats now, you know, that allows them to control the legislative agenda. It allows them to, you know, appoint judges and a range of things and, and, and makes the president's life much easier. Um, you know, the legislative process in the U.S. requires basically that uh, 60 senators vote in favor of legislative uh, uh, legislation to make it pass. And of course, that means that for the Democrats to get anything done, they're going to need a bunch of Republicans on board. So that really, that really limits, if you will, how um, aggressive the Democrats are going to be able to be in terms of pursuing, you know, highly expansionary fiscal policy or, um, uh, you know, a, an aggressive tax agenda, which is one of the things that it, that Biden has talked about. Now, it probably makes things at the margin more likely. So, you know, maybe they'll get two thousand dollars stimulus checks. Um, you know, there's some things that are kind of easier to pass than others, uh, as long as they're put on the docket, which of course the Democrats can do now, but it's not in my mind, it's not, it's not the game changer that some folks think that, you know, this means that the U S is going down the very expansionary path. It, you know, there still are, there still is kind of the checks and balances of the Senate, uh, the Republican side of the Senate, which I think will keep things pretty, pretty grounded. Uh, but you know, at the margin, it's, there's no question this is, this is, positive for U.S. growth in the short run. Um, you're seeing a little bit of that in terms of the bond market reaction so far to the to the, the Georgia result, you know, a bit more of an inflationary outlook because, um, you know, an expectation of more government spending and stronger growth. Uh, and of course, if that if that if that materializes, if we do have strong growth in the U.S., then it means strong growth in Canada and strong growth in the rest of the world. So there is this there is this, you know, despite, I think, not wanting to overestimate the impact of of the result, I mean, it's clearly it's clearly growth positive in the short run. At this point in time, that's that's a good thing. And it, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about energy. The the oil patch has gone through a difficult period. You know, probably were optimistic that some pipelines would more likely be built uh, under Trump. Uh, Biden has come out against Keystone. Keystone's not the only thing going on, but. Uh, uh, in terms of in terms of the energy industry and pipelines, uh, how do you see that? 
I mean, the world is is going in the direction of less reliance on carbon, right? And 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 uh, you know that's true in Canada. It's obviously true in the U.S. And well, Biden would like that to be true in the U.S. Uh, presumably, again, he will have greater scope to act on these things or greater interest to act on these things than than Trump and the Republicans did. So you know, the train has kind of left the station, and that's and that's happening whether whether we we want to or not. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean in the short run or the next little while that oil prices are going to reflect that in, in a very serious way, right? And in fact, what we've seen over the last, actually last last week or so, has been a pretty significant increase in oil prices, in part because the Saudis have decided to cut back production a little bit, and that surprised folks, but also uh, in part because, you know, despite, again, the resurgence of the virus that we've seen, there still is an expectation that growth will be pretty robust at some point this year and going forward. And that obviously creates demand for, for oil, especially if the travel industry picks up and people start flying again. Uh, so the fundamentals for oil in the next couple of years, I, you know, I think are reasonably solid, despite what is likely to be a little bit more of an environmentally activist U.S. government. And on top of that, um, you know, if you think of it from a little bit of a longer term perspective, um, you know, by, you know, if, if Biden acts on his agenda, to say, to reduce, effectively reduce U.S. oil production by, you know, making it more difficult for frackers, limiting access to wildlife refuges. Um, unless U.S. oil demand slows very significantly, the Americans are going to need to buy oil from somewhere. And, and uh, you know, fine, Keystone may longer, longer be in place, but there are, other, there are other pipelines that are going forward and, and we're less reliant on, we're much less reliant on Keystone um, now than we were, you know, six or seven years ago. So, you know, it's not inconceivable that in this constellation of, you know, the Americans trying to limit oil production, um, that we end up actually being able to supply more oil to the U.S. than, than we currently are. And, and, and if oil prices remain, I mean, they're not high, you know, WTI is 50, 50 bucks or so, Western Canada Select is around 35. Um, those aren't particularly high levels, but they're higher than where they were last year. Uh, you know, that that you know, it could be a reasonably positive uh, situation for um, Alberta and other oil producing countries, uh, provinces in the country. So I think we're just about out of time. Any final words of, of encouragement and optimism about 2021? Are you, uh, I mean, I guess it's not, it's, it's not hard to be optimistic after 2020. Almost anything would be better. Uh, but generally you're feeling, uh, feeling bullish about what might lie ahead at least a few months down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think the big question is in the short run is, you know, are we going to be able to control the rise in, in virus counts? And, and we have been able to control in the past. Presumably, we're able to, to, to gain control over it now. Um, and if, you know, if we manage to do that next few weeks, you know, by the end of February, the middle of February, then I think we're in for a very, very good year. If we don't, uh, you know, if we can't, if we can't vaccinate, if, if the virus mutates in, in kind of dangerous ways, um, then it's, it's a different ballgame. But, you know, the science has been pretty amazing on this stuff. So it looks right now like it's more of an execution problem on um uh, the health, public health side, than 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 anything. And if and if and if we can execute properly here and in the U.S. and Europe and other parts of the world, um, then you know it's it looks like it's pretty pretty smooth sailing. All right. Well, that's an excellent excellent note of optimism to end on. I want to thank you once again for joining us, JF. It's always a pleasure. There's lots of the other things we could have talked about, but we're we're out of time. But thanks again for coming, and I'm sure I will be asking you to come back again. 
I've been speaking with Jean-François Perrault, Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Thank you for listening to Pananomics. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and we will see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.